Hi there. This is Elahe Izadi. Before we start the show, just a warning. Today's episode is about war and its tragic consequences. You're going to hear a lot of strong language and profanity. We've made the editorial decision to leave this kind of language in, unfiltered, because it's one of the most detailed accounts of the American military's final days in Afghanistan. There will also be graphic descriptions of the violence that happened in those last days. So please be aware as you choose when and where to listen. You're going to hear this story from my colleague Dan Lamoth, a reporter who covers the military. He's been reporting for years on the war in Afghanistan. And recently, he's been trying to piece together what happened right before a deadly blast at the Kabul airport a year ago, during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Okay, here's Dan. As you get especially toward the last several days, the last week or so in particular of this evacuation effort, um, th- there was uh, numerous warnings in the expectation that suicide bomber or bombers uh, could be coming to the airport. The Islamic State uh, has a component in Afghanistan, and the United States was deeply concerned that there could either be car bombs or people with suicide vests mixed into the crowd. They had specific descriptions of people they thought might be suicide bombers. They had specific descriptions of vehicles that they thought were points of concern. You know, we we were watching from our tower. Tyler Vargas Andrews was a sergeant and a member of a scout sniper platoon at the airport. Um, he was put up in a guard tower uh, along with some of his uh, fellow Marines, and, and their job was to watch out for any kind of threat that might appear. I mean, I stayed up every night um, behind the gun as many hours as I could because I was like, if something's going to fucking happen, like, it's going to happen at night. And so every night I was just up, you know, I'd set my phone next to me and just, like, play, play country music and just, like, I was just on the gun. On August 26th, 2021, Tyler is up in the guard tower. It overlooks Abbey Gate, one of the last ways into the airport. And he saw something that caught his eye. We had eyes on him for probably 30 minutes. He describes to us a situation where he sees someone that matches a description they have. Uh, The man's jittery. He's sweating profusely. They believe he's a suicide bomber based on this detailed description that that has been disseminated to U.S. forces. Um, We ID'd the exact description of this guy and who he was with, and we passed it up for clearance. This is in a deeply packed crowd. Uh, If you open fire, there's the concern of causing chaos. There's the concern of uh, causing pandemonium, a crush of people, a stampede, a firefight with the Taliban that's nearby. There's all other kinds of things that can go wrong here. He said he asked for permission to open fire on this individual from a relatively short distance away, particularly for a trained marksman. And they denied our clearance to shoot on him. You know, we haven't shared this outside of our team and meeting guys out there, but, you know, they're we, we passed up and we were denied clearance to fire because of uh, civilian casualties. He said to this day that eats at him. The man sort of slips back into this sea of people. And then a couple hours later, the explosion goes off, Tyler told us. We talked to a couple other people about this incident and about the bombing and about who exactly the bomber was. 
General Frank McKenzie, the top commander at the time, said nothing like that ever came to his level. It's possible it stayed at lower levels, but Tyler is convinced. He's certain that it's the same individual that he saw a couple hours before that ultimately detonated that bomb. The same individual that ultimately killed 170 Afghans and 13 American service members that afternoon. 200 people fucking died, and 13 of, you know, my brothers and sisters died, and, you know, two of my buddies. And, I mean, it's the, the loss of life they thought they were trying to prevent or protect was a lot less than what happened. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 24th. Today, we're looking back at the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan from the perspective of rank-and-file service members, the Marines and others who were on the ground, frustrated by the ways the U.S. was pulling out of the country, even as they were trying to get people out and watching horrific things happen right before their eyes. For me, it's a matter of, I think, making sure that the record is as full and complete as possible. Dan spoke with more than a dozen U.S. service members who were there during the catastrophic bombing at the Kabul airport in the final days of the withdrawal. We're going to hear from a few of them today to hear the story that they remember. It's a story that at times is different and more nuanced than the official U.S. government account. Covering the military, we often have a situation where we're getting an initial story from the Pentagon, from briefing podiums. One thing that I think was was often missing for months in discussing this is the average service member who was there for a long period of time either chose not to speak about it publicly uh, or were not allowed to speak about it publicly. There were some flavors of both going on. Mm. Uh, we've been able to get to several active duty service members who are able to speak about it publicly, uh, describe what they went through, describe what they saw, describe the frustrations, the heartbreak, and sort of the catastrophic nature of, of pieces of this evacuation. Before we get into more of what the Marines you spoke to shared with you, what do we understand from the Pentagon or even more broadly the Biden administration to be the official narrative about how the U.S. withdrawal went? I think this is something that's evolved over time. Last year, especially on the front end of of the evacuation, when so many things were obviously going wrong on their face, there there was this this discussion of, oh, we're getting control of it. It's better than it was yesterday, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. As it progressed, you started getting into, hey, we were able to move X, you know, thousand people out on a given Tuesday. Uh, and, you know, and they focused on some of the successes, which, to be fair, they're, they were able to move, you know, tens of thousands of people out with very little preparation. So, so there was things that did go well here. The problem was often that those were things that happened despite the way that this happened all at once, that the planning didn't line up with the way the reality kind of played out. You know, the American service members were in grave danger uh, for days on end. Uh, And, you know, they were always relying on things that were sort of faulty. You know, can you trust the Taliban checkpoint to hold? Can you trust their motivations? Uh, You know, they had numerous 
uh, reports of imminent threats, imminent inbound suicide bombers, things like that. And eventually they did have that explosion and they did have catastrophic loss of life. So tell me about the service members you spoke to. Who are they and what roles specifically do they play in the withdrawal? Yes, come in. Yeah, this is going to be So we've interviewed several service members here. Dan. Dan, nice to meet you. Hi, Brina. Hi, John. Hi, John. They include Gunnery Sergeant Jonathan Eby. My name is Gunnery Sergeant Eby. I'm a 0369 Infantry Platoon Sergeant. Um, I've been in the Marine Corps for 17 years. Uh, who was a platoon sergeant in charge of a group of about 40 Marines. Everybody everybody knew that 1st Platoon was the best place to be, I feel like. Maybe I'm, I'm probably biased. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm completely aware that I... I mean, if you weren't biased <laughs> on this. And we interviewed a, a warrant officer, Sasha Savage. Uh, my pr- primary job was supply operations. She was in charge of a, uh, a search team. It was an opportunity that I could possibly do, be a part of the female search teams. That was tasked with uh, basically separating women, searching them, making sure everything was safe. We've also interviewed uh, Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, uh, who was a part of a scout sniper team. He was wounded uh, catastrophically uh, as a result of that explosion. For once, I brought uh, my gun belt, uh, a few of the items I got blown up with. So, I know we heard a little bit from Tyler already, but can you tell me a little bit more about Tyler? Where did you meet him, and what was he like? I also have a sword cane. That's the noise in my, my cane. Tyler was remarkable. Um, we spent um, somewhere in the ballpark of about four hours with him at Walter Reed uh, Military Hospital, uh, just outside Washington. He walked into the room with a prosthetic leg and a cane, uh, immediately introduced himself. You know, he seemed eager to tell his story. I mean, it's just crazy, honestly. I mean, my, my physical therapist one time joked with me. She was like, yeah, she's like, yeah, you're famous for being the last amputee out of Afghanistan. I, I always wonder when you do a story like this that that's focused around trauma. You know, are, is somebody ready to talk? Are they willing to talk? Are they reluctantly talking? This was something where he was like, I think, waiting for a turn and an opportunity to talk. You know, this right here and tomorrow is just give me a voice for them, for the guys who aren't going to speak about it or who just can or, or don't want to or who want to and aren't able. Um, so how did he end up in Afghanistan? Tyler was a part of a team of, of Marines, a unit of Marines that was already deployed in the Middle East and spending time in Saudi Arabia. The Marine Corps often has units ready kind of on a rotational basis. There's always somebody in the neighborhood in case something goes wrong. Embassy needs to be evacuated, something like that. So this was a Marine kind of focused around crisis response. So they got pulled in on relatively short notice. Two weeks prior to us going, they were like, you guys are probably going to go. But prior to that, the month prior to them telling us, we had started training for a non-combatant evacuation operation. So exactly what we were out there doing. They had some level of training for this kind of thing, but I don't think anything can really prepare you fully for this kind of experience. You know, it was unlike anything any of our previous generations had gone through. And what was he doing at the airport? What was his responsibility? He was a part of a scout sniper team. He's an infantryman by trade. His team uh, was largely posted up in a guard tower that kind of oversaw the Abbey Gate, the surrounding area. So they had kind of a bird's eye view that a lot of other people did not. The best way I'd describe it is it was so packed. Like if you filled up this room with sand, that's how close people were together, essentially. And uh, just 
desperate and fearing for their lives. We viewed several videos uh, that, that Tyler shared with us, um, and, and some of them were actually even from above, uh, from this guard tower looking down on the crowds. This is the fucking reality of the world, people. Yep. I think your fucking lives are hard. They're not. I mean, he took these videos, I think, in part to, to share with uh, some of his colleagues, some of his family, but he narrates pieces of them. So you, know, you kind of even have his own sense of frustration in the moment. People had made it to the Taliban checkpoint and they had just been beaten or just bloodied and like people are camping out for days to get into the gate. This crush of people outside the airport fell into several different categories. You've got American citizens. Some are Afghan-American citizens uh, who have ties to both countries and have the ability and, and permission of the U.S. government to leave if they can prove their citizenship. You've got a second group of people who assisted the American war effort. And you've got a category of people that are green card holders who often have ties to both countries as well. I mean, the other group of people here is uh, Afghans who were looking for a way out. 90% of the people that were at the gate didn't have passports. They didn't have visas. They had no reason to be there. They were just desperate. They had no particular tie to the U.S. government or the U.S. government effort, uh, but, but were just, you know, begging for ways out. They're just, like, hitting us and tackling our guys, and we're just trying to, like, like get the gate, like get a funnel set up with vehicles. In between their turns in the guard tower, they were helping with crowd control as they were searching people. You're checking for, do they have any kind of explosives? Do they have any kind of weapons? You know, and then you're sorting through their stories and their paperwork. Some of these people were there with loved ones who had been separated in the crowd right on the edge of the gates. At times, you know, it got very violent, very chaotic. At one point, like, these people were pushing through the gate, and this lady, you know, she just, like, gets pushed over, and they just, they trampled her to death, and it happened quite a few times. And I think for all of us to remember, to think back to that moment when the Taliban took over, it really felt like there was a switch, and it happened so quickly and abruptly in Kabul to see that. For Tyler, there on the ground at the airport, what did he witness when the Taliban took over? Among the things he said he saw were executions, uh, the Taliban killing people outside the airport. He saw beatings uh, with the Taliban, you know, taking a, a switch and other things to, you know, random civilians that, to his eyes, didn't have any of this coming. Night after night, without fail, the Taliban would just line people up on the other side of the Connex box from our Marines and uh, at their checkpoint, and they line people up and just execute them. You know, they there was... Uh, there were just piles of bodies. You know, they were beating them to death. And, um, you know, I've got, you know, I took footage, took video of it from our personal, our, like our, our work gear, our work cameras and stuff to pass to Intel. One of the things that he seemed to be struggling with the most here is his job was to observe, to some degree document, uh, certainly report back up the chain of command what he was seeing. But whenever he said, hey, can we do anything about this? Uh, the answer was always no. The answer was always no, because if you were to open fire on somebody who was, even if they were abusing a, a, you know, a woman, a child, something like that, there was still the greater concern, I think, that in the eyes of higher command, of if we allow a Marine sniper to open fire now, you know, and even if they kill somebody who is you know, openly abusing others in front of us, what, what's the downward spiral after that? Right. You know, this whole thing was kind of, you know, kind of teetering for quite some time. 
and, and you know, what's going to be the, the spark that completely puts this thing into a downward spiral? You know, it's a give and take. It's like, you know, if we start firing at them, like, you know, they're going to start firing at us, obviously. Like, do we want to get in that scenario? I get it, but it's a hard thing. You know, that's something that, you know, the command doesn't have to live with, but we all have to live with. You know, we, each and every one of us saw them murdering people. Was there one story in particular that Tyler shared with you that really struck you about his work at the airport? It, yes. You know, we're going through these people, checking their paperwork, sending them off. And um, I just remember, like, somehow this, you know, this is not a story that I've, I've shared with anyone other than my mom and her and some of my close buddies. But um, So he described uh, coming across a young girl, maybe maybe eight years old, carrying an infant, holding the hand of another child, probably three or four years old. This, this little girl, um, just like clothes ripped, like bloody face, like tears streak, just like sobbing, just holding this like four month old little baby and like her little brother's hand, who's like four or five, she's probably seven or eight, and just like sobbing, like coming through. These three children really are all by themselves, no adults around. And I was like, I go up to her and I grab, I grab her, and I, like, pick up the baby, and I'm holding the baby, and the baby's face is, like, like blue. And the little kid, and I, like, hold, grab her hand, and, like, walk him over to, I believe it was a PJ or some some other type of medic out there. And, uh, you know, I started, uh, I gave him the baby, and I was like, hey, like, you know, this baby's not breathing. Um, like, we need to, like, give, like, a BBM, um, like a bag to help it breathe, like a little one. They were able to resuscitate the child. And the baby's fine, like, got color back in the face, started just crying and sobbing. And uh, I sat the little kid, the, the young boy down, and the little girl, and she was just, like, yelling, like, Abba, 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 like her dad, like, yelling for her dad. And I was just, like, not really, like, thinking straight because it was just so chaotic. I was like, I was like, fuck, I'm going to find your fucking dad. Like, I'm going to find your fucking dad. Like, you're not going without your dad. And I was just, I picked her up, and I walked her up to the gate. So he gets himself up into a higher position, and they kind of search together to a degree for this father that he doesn't even know if if this you know this father exists in in close proximity. I lean over the edge of of like the gate, and I'm just like like Do you see your dad? Like Abba Abba, like pointing around, and like and I just see this one guy. And he's just like sobbing, like hands on his head, just like looking at her, and she's like pointing, and I'm like that's her dad. Like, he's like maybe like 20 people back. And I was like, that, that, that has to be her dad. And he's looking at her sobbing. And uh, I like yelled down to the couple British guys and like some of the Marines that were like right at the, at the entry of the gate. And I'm like, hey, like you need to get like a funnel through and like let this guy through. And, uh, and they did, they got him through and he came through and he had all the paperwork, had passports for every one of them, met up with the wife. Um, yeah, and that was, that was, um, that was huge for me. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know. I, I look back on, I look at my injuries, you know, every day. And, um, you know, that, that one family, um, You know, they have a life now. Wow. So Tyler, in that moment, he's reunited this family, and he's still at the airport. 
What happens after that? So the the, um, the reunification of that family came a couple days prior to the explosion. All throughout this entire ordeal on the ground, there was a sense that the, the end was coming, uh, that, that, that they at some point would close the gates, they would continue the process and, and, and care for the people inside the airport. Basically, everybody else was too late. Uh, so on the 26th of August, uh, which they already understood to be the day that the gates would be closing, uh, and, and this also comes with the context of the, already knowing that there are active threats of suicide bombers mm. imminent at any time. So you're, so you're sorting through how many more people can we save and what might happen at any given moment. The, the night of, I think it was like 2, 2.35, 2.45 a.m., you know, they, I was up and we had just gotten intel from, uh, from our guys. And they're like, you know, there's an ID attack imminent. This is the morning of the 26th. There's an ID attack imminent. Tyler is up in the guard tower uh, near the Abbey Gate. A Marine below uh, asks for help, uh, that they have an interpreter nearby that they're trying to find who has all his paperwork. They're trying to get this guy out. So uh, Tyler comes down the ladder well of this tower, uh, and he's, he's kind of walking along the edge of the airport along with another Marine, Darren Hoover. They're trying to find this guy. I pulled this dude out and check all his stuff, and he's got a guy with him, and it's him and his brother. Everything he has checks out, and he says, hey, my family's here too. But the family is not with him because he was concerned that if he didn't basically force his way to the edge, none of them would get out. Right. So... Now they got to connect this family back together. And he like points, he's like, she, she's at the bend in the canal, and that's like 5,000, 6,000 people away. And I'm like, oh, fuck, like this dude. Like in my head, I'm going through this internally. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, this dude's family's not going to fucking get through. Like, there's no way the gate's going to be closed by the time she makes it. So they're kind of waiting with this guy on the side, and Tyler is kind of looking at other passports and other people. In the meantime, you know, is there anybody else in this crowd we can help in this, you know, relatively small window of time we have left? And then out of the blue, I just see a flash and boom, like this massive wave of pressure just hit me. He's knocked off his feet and recalls coming to, looking to his left and basically seeing a huge sea of lifeless people. My right ear is just like super high-pitched ringing, like and my left ear is just muffled, and I hear people fucking screaming, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, I knew what happened right away. I was like, holy shit, like, I got blown up. I was like, I just got hit by a fucking bomb. He can't stand up, and he can't understand why. Uh, And as as we know now, he had an extremely serious injury to his right arm, his left leg, and his entire side and, and sort of stomach area is, is blown open as well. I tried to, like, get up, and I was just trying to get up. And we started taking shots from the neighborhood and from farther down the canal. And, uh, you know, I'm just hearing cracks go over my head um, and going past me, and I'm just like, fuck, like... He hears to what his ears sound like gunshots, so he's also concerned that he's also being attacked, even in those following moments. And, and he described kind of trying to drag himself out of harm's way and not really being able to do much and kind of processing the idea that he was dying and that there wasn't much he could do about it on his own. That, in that moment, I was like, I'm dead. I'm, I'm, I'm really dead. And uh, I just, I could feel myself kind of fading and I like closed my eyes. I was just like, man, what, like, 
what the fuck? And, uh, you know, the next thing I just hear, Tyler, Tyler. Tyler credits several people for saving his life that day, including Sergeant Charles Schilling and Navy Corpsman Jorge Mayo. His team pulled him out of harm's way, got him to emergency surgery at the airport, and then on to Germany for additional treatments. By the next month, Tyler was recovering from multiple surgeries at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. He's still there now, going to physical therapy. He's Walter Reed's last long-term patient from the war in Afghanistan. After the break, what happened after the explosion? And the story that the U.S. government tells about that day. We'll be right back. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. Dan, can you give us a sense of the scale of that explosion? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think, first of all, it's important to reflect that th- this is an explosion that basically the world knew about immediately. You know, there were, there were a lot of eyes on this as it happened. Uh, but sort of the scope of the devastation, you know, you're talking 170 dead Afghans, give or take. Uh, that number has been hard to pin down. Um, 13 U.S. service members killed. Uh, dozens more injured. Uh, some of those injuries, like Tyler's, are you know more or less life-altering. So a- as we're looking at this explosion, um, despite the the jaw-dropping loss of life in this, um, I think it's important to note that the the size of the explosion, the size of the blast wave, uh, the, the the amount of explosives, all were relatively concentrated and small. The reality of where they were very tightly, densely packed area, basically people shoulder to shoulder as far as the eye could see, uh, created a situation where the suicide bomber was able to kind of wait, see where he could do the most damage, uh, and and then, you know, detonate with a specific planning. Yeah, and for the, the service members you spoke with, what happened in that explosion for them? Did they lose anyone on their team in that moment? Gunny Eby, uh, his his Marines were right on the Abbey Gate, uh, involved in crowd control. Uh, I had Marines falling within the crowd, getting stepped on or trampled, and we'd have to we'd have to go get them. Um, <clears throat> and it would just be like, hey, get up and keep pushing. Like Eby also recalls being at the gate that day. He doesn't know exactly what transpired, but he knows he he was supposed to be aware of a man with a black backpack or bag and that that was potentially a threat. Sasha's uh, unit, um, you know, they, they would basically take shifts. Our goal was to try and keep families together as much as possible. They've already, like, been through, uh, you know, a traumatizing experience, and they just want to be with their family. So as much as we could, we would try and keep 
the families together so they wouldn't feel like they're getting separated again. And they were trying to be respectful of, of, you know, cultures and customs in Afghanistan at the time. So you needed women there as well to assist these Afghan families. I just didn't realize how much of an impact we were actually going to make. So when we got out there and actually got to see, you know, firsthand, um, you know, that's something that's meaningful. These are people who, in their immediate units, uh, suffered great losses uh, through this effort. Uh, The the bombing killed 13 American service members. Nine of them were in Gunnery Sergeant Eby's platoon of 40-something. That's a catastrophic loss, a very serious, heartbreaking loss for one small unit. Sasha Savage had um, also had uh, Marines on the line when the explosion went off, and Sergeant Nicole G um, was another of the casualties, and she also had um, an an additional Marine uh, who was there and was very seriously injured. You know, all of my my goals and aspirations in the military, you know, I had planned on being in for at least at least another, you know, four to six years. Um, and, uh, you know, that 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 was a hard pill to swallow, you know, um, you know, not being able to achieve those goals that I wanted. I wanted to talk to Tyler because for me, he represented several things that are important here. Uh, for one, he's still only in his 20s. He's still only he's not yet 25. So he represents a lot of rank and file. These are young Americans who enlist, who want to deploy, uh, who are not afraid of being in, in a place like Afghanistan, who are trying to, you know, in some way contribute. Uh, and they often sacrifice a great deal. And they certainly sacrificed a great deal both on this day and then earlier in the war you had, where you had Americans on patrol and on convoys and in firefights pretty frequently going back, you know, you know, a decade prior to the end here. I also wanted to talk to him because he, he's basically the last long-term patient at Walter Reed from this modern war. Um, he's closing in on the end of his time there. He's still going to physical therapy there. You know, there was a time where Walter Reed Hospital was very crowded. You know, you had many people being injured. So for me to go back years later now after doing interviews there earlier... Uh, it was striking to to kind of close that loop a bit to kind of hear the last individual out. I just have to hold on to the fact, you know, that one, I'm alive. Um, I, have, I have friends who aren't, and uh, you know, none of my best friends were injured. None of them were hurt, and I know any one of them, you know, would trade places to be with me. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't give that away. Um, I wouldn't trade places with any of them. I'm. I'm thankful it was me. You know. Does the U.S. government acknowledge that these were big failures? I mean, were there any investigations that took place looking back at how this all unfolded and any sort of conclusion about that narrative officially? There was a lengthy investigation that the military itself conducted last fall, uh, kind of as everybody came back home, uh, many hours of interviews, service members at pretty much all levels of rank participating. Thank you and good afternoon, everybody. We're with you today to brief the results of the investigation that I directed into the ISIS-K bombing at Abbey Gate. At Hamas. The Pentagon's findings uh, were that the the loss of life in this explosion was not preventable, uh, mm-hmm. and that it, to their eyes, the loss of life occurred all because of one single catastrophic bomb 
The investigation found that a single explosive device killed at least 170 Afghan civilians and 13 U.S. service members by explosively directing ball bearings through a packed crowd and into our men and women at Abbey Gate. The problem is, even within the, the guts of that report, the witness statements of that report, many of the Marines in particular who are at that gate remember it differently. They recall being shot at after the explosion. They recall returning fire after that explosion. And, and the Pentagon essentially said that, hey, uh, you know, they were concussed. They had just experienced this explosion uh, and, and more or less kind of diminishing what these Marines themselves remembered. The investigation found no definitive proof that anyone was ever hit or killed by gunfire, either U.S. or Afghan. And I know there are Marines and parents of the, of the fallen uh, service members in particular that have taken exception to that. Right. And basically said, you know, what do you mean we don't remember this right? Did you talk to any of the people in charge of this evacuation effort? And what did they say about these accounts that you heard from service members? We had a tough job to do. Uh, I think we went in and did that job as professionals. We talked to General Frank McKenzie. Uh, he's a recently retired four-star Marine general. Uh, at the time, he was the chief of U.S. Central Command, which put him in charge of the whole thing. They should be, be very proud of the job that they did. And they should decouple and not, not weigh their action, their enormous courage on the ground with, you know, with whatever the decisions were made at higher levels to get them into that point. He was quick to uh, acknowledge the sacrifice, the uh, sort of the bitter nature of this for a lot of the people involved, particularly those who lost, uh, you know, people out of their unit, loved ones, et cetera. I think we all, um, you know, we all, we all feel bitterly, you know, what happened at the end. Uh, we all regret. We regret the attack on the 26th. He was in an interesting spot where his own military advice to the president was to keep troops in Afghanistan. Uh, and then once the president made his decision to pull everyone, uh, the Pentagon was advocating uh, basically getting a move on the evacuation. There was friction between uh, the State Department and the Defense Department. Uh, the State Department wanted to keep the embassy open as, as long as possible. Uh, the Defense Department was trying to uh, basically get a jump on, on moving out as many Afghans as possible. And, uh, you know, we kind of ended up where we ended up. Dan, I know you and the people you've spoken to have thought a lot about the ways the withdrawal could have played out but didn't. What were the other alternatives that were being considered by the Pentagon? And what did General McKenzie tell you about that? One of the first things that General McKenzie noted is that uh, there, there's another universe here where the evacuation could have been started earlier, uh, perhaps as soon as April, uh, which is give or take, right after when the president announced uh, the withdrawal coming. That's not, as you know, that's not a military decision. That's a decision of the Department of State. And I, look, I'm sympathetic to the Department of State and to, the, and to our charge A there, Ambassador Wilson. No ambassador wants to shut an embassy down because that is the ultimate sign of defeat if you have to bring, if you have to bring all American, you know, your, your Americans out. So I'm very sympathetic to that. Having said that, had we begun much earlier in the process, perhaps as early as April, we would have been able to get people out in a much more orderly manner, and, uh, and and we would have avoided a lot of the late stage problems that you saw. And and we're kind of in a world where we don't know how that would have gone. It, you know, in many ways, this evacuation 
uh, was a success, but you know, with a whole lot of heartbreak and difficulty uh, mixed in. So let's say you begin that evacuation earlier. Um, you're probably able to get Americans out more easily. Uh, you know, and there were thousands of Americans that, that were evacuated. There were hundreds of more Americans that were left behind. There were some Afghan Americans that had American citizenship that were stuck in this kind of horrible decision of uh, being able to leave, but also having aunts, uncles, whoever else that could not. Uh, and basically having to make that choice of do I stay with my family and try and protect them or, or do I leave when I have a chance? Um, but the the other thing, and this is something General McKenzie raised, and, it, and it's something that others raised as well. Um, if you begin that evacuation more quickly, what other dominoes fall? Uh, the Afghan government at the time was, was greatly concerned that if you begin the evacuation earlier, um, you know, basically you precipitate some of the same sort of events anyway. You know, the fall of Kabul occurred in August. If you began the evacuation earlier, does it still occur in August? Or do you now have a fall of Kabul in May? And those are kind of unknowables. Dan, you've been covering the war in Afghanistan for so many years. And with this particular reporting mission that you had, you you set out to capture the stories and experiences of service members who were on the ground during the withdrawal in order to have this fuller account of the evacuation and what took place. So after these conversations... What impression are you left with about the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Yeah, um, my on-the-ground experience in Afghanistan begins in 2010, uh, back for the independent Marine Corps Times newspaper. Uh, it's a lot of time in Helmand province. Uh, it's a lot of time on patrol. It's a lot of, uh, you know, scary moments of my life, but also incredibly exciting and, and, and rewarding moments as well. So I think that informs my reporting now. Um, you know, and, and kind of having that perspective of, you know, what a young infantryman might be thinking, which can be many different things, but, uh, you know, it just, at least having that, you know, sleeping in the dirt sort of feel to it. Um, so as I look on it now, and, and as I hear these, these stories, you know, seeing what that war was back then and, and what it ultimately became, it's complicated. And, and, and I'm still sorting through my own emotions on it, frankly. You, you're trying to approach these stories with fairness, some level of objectivity, uh, while at the same time having the frame of reference for, you know, at this point, many years of heartbreaking stories, individual anecdotes, you know, that you report out in individual stories. Mm -hmm. Did it leave you with any more questions, these conversations, especially looking at what's happened to Afghanistan since since the United States has withdrawn? I guess I'm struggling with what options were left. Uh, because I've done enough of these heartbreaking stories and enough of this, enough of the, enough of the conversations with the Gold Star families that have lost service members to, to know that continuing down that path also would have had been, you know, many more heartbreaks in it as well. But I, I guess the the reason I've really homed in on this story, especially in the last year, is it, I have a hard time accepting the talking point that this was the best we can do. I, I, I will continue to, I guess, pick at that. 
there were many paths in terms of what an evacuation could have looked like, in terms of what a withdrawal could have looked like. Tonight in Kabul, the United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. You know, we're kind of closing the chapter in some ways on, on 20 years. We completed one of the biggest airlifts in history. And that's an awful lot. The only the United States had the capacity and the will and the ability to do it, and we did it today. Uh, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of heartbreak, uh, a lot of money. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravely, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. And I guess I'm left wondering, you know, as, as we choose our own adventures in future endeavors, you know, how this might or might not uh, inform American foreign policy in some future conflict. We owe them and their families a debt of gratitude we can never repay, but we should never, ever, ever forget. You know, will we as a nation look back on this and say, oh yeah, I remember X, and it's not exactly the same, but maybe we should think about that. Or, as we frequently do in the past, do we just kind of turn the page and then blunder our way through other things not even taking the lessons, the very hard lessons that we could have learned. Thank you for bringing us your reporting, Dan. Thank you. Dan Lamoth covers the Pentagon. This story was produced and scored by Rena Flores. It was edited by Maggie Penman, along with Martine Powers and Renita Jablonski. Sean Carter mixed the show and helped with recording interviews. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.